So today we're going to be reading Isaiah 44.24 to 45.13. This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb, I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, and of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins, I will restore them, who says to the watery deep, be dry and I will dry up your streams, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please, he will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid, This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down the gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honour, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Those who are nothing but potsherds among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, What are you making? Does your work say, The potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to the father, What have you begotten? Or to a mother, What have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, The Holy One of Israel and its Maker. Concerning things to come, Do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. But not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. Well, good afternoon, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Tom. I'm on the staff with the Christian Union here. Well, some heroes are unexpected, unlikely heroes. I want to introduce you to a character, Steve Rogers. Some of you may have heard of him. He is a puny, pathetic little runt. He is nobody. Except in the universe of Marvel movies, there are these crazy scientists running around with syringes and fancy chemicals 
And next thing you know, this unlikely hero is transformed into the mighty and powerful Captain America. Well, there's another kind of unexpected hero. Take, for example, Severus Snape. He is the ultimate bad guy. He is pure evil. He scowls like a bad guy. He wears black, so he must be a bad guy. And then he proves that he is the ultimate evil when, spoiler alert, he kills Dumbledore. Surely that is like the greatest evil you could ever commit, to kill Dumbledore. But then this unexpected hero turns out to be a good guy after all. Dumbledore told him to kill him. And apparently, by being on the inside with Voldemort, he could sort of he could take him down from the inside like a spy. See, the bad guy turned out to be the good guy. As we come to our Bible passage in Isaiah, we meet a character who is unlike any other hero. In fact, he's one of these unlikely heroes. So he's actually he's just like the two we've looked at. He started out as a nobody. But he went on to become the king of the greatest empire the world had ever seen. And he was an idol-worshipping tyrant, clearly a bad guy. But he went on to become the liberator of the Jews, and therefore seen as a huge good guy. His name is Cyrus the Great, king of Persia. Now, in order to make sense of our Bible reading from Isaiah, it's going to be necessary to learn a bit of history. Whenever we read anything in the books of the prophets, such as Isaiah, it's really essential that you know the history, the context that the prophet is speaking into. So let's start with some history. In the year 587 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon conquered the Jews. He conquered Jerusalem. He destroyed the temple. He broke down the city walls. And then he carried away all of the Jews into exile into Babylon. Now, while all the Jews are in Babylon, I want to draw your attention to two other kingdoms close by. You can see the yellow area there is the kingdom of Babylon, or the empire of Babylon, And then just to the north of it is another kingdom called Media, uh, with a king named Astyages. And then down to the southeast, there's this tiny, itty-bitty little kingdom called Anshan. Basically a cluster of villages in the hills. And they are ruled by a king named Cyrus. Now, Cyrus and Astyages formed a bit of an alliance Cyrus married the daughter of Astyages, the king of Media. But the alliance didn't last very long. It was only a short amount of time before war broke out between these two nations. But when you line these two teams up, so you put them in opposite corners of the boxing ring, it's a very unfair match. You've got this great big powerful nation of Media, like the Hulk in one corner... And then you got pathetic, puny little Steve Rogers before he became Captain America in the other corner. Everybody knows how this is going to turn out. 
And everybody was wrong. To the astonishment of the world, Cyrus won. We suspect that the armies of media held a coup and switched sides and joined with Cyrus to then make Cyrus the king of media. And by doing so, Cyrus has become the first ruler of what is now known as the Persian Empire. Once he's taken over media, he continues to expand and conquers other surrounding nations as well. And his power grows and grows into another big superpower that can now rival the empire of Babylon. Meanwhile, in Babylon, things are a bit of a mess. The king in Babylon is a guy named Nabonidus. But the people of Babylon hate Nabonidus. They would love to get rid of him. And here is why. The god of Babylon, Marduk. Every year, the Babylonians would hold this great big festival called the Akitu in honour of their god, Marduk. And the climax of the festival was this particular ritual where the king of Babylon would recognise Marduk as the one who is truly in control and the true ruler, and so would do this ceremony where he would grasp the hand of Marduk. But the Akitu festival also involved another aspect of the ceremony, which was designed to humble the king, to prove his subservience to the god Marduk. It was a festival where the high priest of Marduk would belt the king across the face until tears flowed down his cheeks. Who wants to be the king of Babylon? Not me. Well, it turns out Nabonidus wasn't such a big fan of this festival either. So the king of Babylon refused to worship the god of Babylon. He went and worshipped other gods instead. And then to make things worse, he went on a little bit of a holiday. He went on a retreat to Arabia, still within his kingdom, to our little oasis paradise. And he stayed there for ten years. So the people of Babylon are not very pleased. Their king is absent and their god Marduk must be getting really, really mad because our king is not worshipping him and honouring him and doing the festival. And it's never a good idea to make your god mad. Now, while all of this is going on in Babylon, Cyrus and the Persians now turn their attack to the Babylonian Empire itself. Uh, There was a big battle just to the north of Babylon, and Cyrus and the Persians won. That then opens the way for them to march onto the city, the capital city of Babylon itself. But when they got there, there was no battle. See, the uh, Babylonians decided that this Cyrus guy would actually make a much better king than Nabonidus. So they opened the gates, welcomed Cyrus in as a liberator. He got a hero's welcome. And so without battle... Cyrus now became ruler over Babylon as well. So Cyrus, this king of this tiny, itty-bitty little kingdom called Anshan, was now the ruler over the greatest empire the world had ever, ever seen. 
And he did this in only 14 years. Now, to help you get a sense of what that's like in modern terms, I want you to imagine a relatively small, not very well-off nation. Let's say the nation of Nepal in the Himalayas. Let's say Nepal decides that they're going to go on a military (coughs) campaign and attack China. And they win. And so then they flex their muscles a bit more and go and take India. And they win. Right, let's take on Russia. And if they're about to attack Russia, the Russians all say, we're sick of Vladimir Putin anyway. Let's just welcome in the president of Nepal. And all of a sudden, Nepal has become the greatest superpower the world has ever seen in only 14 years from now. It is unthinkable. But that's what it was like, the rise of Cyrus. Nobody saw it coming. Cyrus was that unexpected hero, like puny little Steve Rogers, who suddenly turned into Captain America and then went went and took over the world. Now, as Cyrus took the throne in Babylon, he publicly declared his loyalty to the Babylonian god, Marduk. And he gave Marduk the credit for making him the king. So if you go to the British Museum today, you can see this fascinating little clay cylinder. This cylinder is actually a document. See all those funny little markings and squiggles on it? That's actually writing. And this document goes back to Cyrus himself and gives Cyrus's account of how he became the ruler over Babylon, how he came to power. So let me read to you some extracts from the writing that is on this cylinder. Marduk sought and looked throughout all the lands, searching for a righteous king whose hand he could grasp. Remember the Akitu festival. He called to Cyprus, king of Anshan, and announced his name as king of the universe. And Marduk, the great lord, the leader of his people, looked happily at the good deeds and the steadfast mind of Cyrus and ordered him to march on his own city, Babylon, set him on the road to Babylon and went alongside him like a friend and companion. Marduk allowed him to enter Babylon without battle or fight, sparing his own city of Babylon from hardship and delivered Nabonidus, who had not worshipped him, into his hand. See, the message was very clear for everyone in Babylon and throughout the Persian Empire. Their god Marduk had chosen a faithful king to rule over his people. Marduk is the one who put Cyrus on the throne. So now I want you to imagine that you are a Jew who's been carried away in exile living in Babylon as all of these events take place. What are you going to make of these events? Well, you've already had to suffer the great tyranny of Babylon. And now it appears that Babylon is being replaced by an even worse villain. See, the villain of Babylon is now giving way to the supervillain of Persia. But now Cyrus proves himself to be an unexpected hero in yet another way. When Cyrus took power, he introduced a new kind of foreign policy, one that the world had never seen before. 
the empires before him, so the Babylonians and the Assyrians, their policy was that whenever they conquered people, they would disperse them across their empire and scatter them. Because when you're scattered, it's very difficult to regroup, form an army and fight and cause any trouble. So it's just easier to make them assimilate. But Cyrus had a different policy. Instead, he made a decree that all of these conquered, exiled people groups could return home to their own lands, to their own countries, and could rebuild their temples and their shrines and worship their own gods once again. You see, Cyrus figured that if all the gods could be returned to their own local regions and worshipped by their own people, then that would make all of the gods happy. And that just seems like a better policy than relying on one god to outmuscle all the other gods. So now, all kinds of people groups were given permission to go home. They could rebuild and worship again, and that included the Jews. Now the Jews can return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple that the Babylonians destroyed. See, to the astonishment of the Jews, this pagan, idol-worshipping king of Persia became their liberator. The ultimate bad guy just turned out to be a hero, a bit like Snape. Turned out to be a good guy (coughs) after all. Now, with all of that historical background, and there was quite a lot of it, we now come to the book of Isaiah. What does Isaiah have to say about this whole turn of events? Well, there's two points I want to draw your attention to from that passage in Isaiah. Point number one. It was the Lord, the God of Israel, who did all this, not Marduk. And secondly, God can use evil for good. So our first point, it was the Lord, the God of Israel, and not Marduk. Now, at one level, to us, that's obvious, because we all know there's only one God. The God of Israel is the only true God, and we're told that explicitly by Isaiah. So look at chapter 45, verses 5 and 6. I think in your outlines you won't see a big chapter number, but down your first column you'll see the verse numbers restart. That's the beginning of chapter 45. And so if you then look to verses 5 and 6. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The Lord, the God of Israel, is God, but Marduk, he is just an idol. Isaiah also reminds us that it is the Lord who created all things. In chapter 44 and verse 24, so near the very beginning of your passage, I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself. He doesn't need other gods to help him. And then down towards the end of your passage, in chapter 45 and verse 12, It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. 
See, the Lord created the universe, but Marduk? Well, Marduk was just created by men. See, Cyrus and all of the Babylonians and all of the Persians, they believed that Marduk had raised up Cyrus to be his chosen king to rule over the empire. But Isaiah makes it clear that all of these things that were credited to Marduk were actually done by the Lord, the God of Israel. So come with me now to chapter 5 and verse 1. I have several observations just from this one verse. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. Now that word anointed, meaning to be anointed with oil, it is the same word as the word Messiah. God has just called a pagan idol-worshipping king his chosen Messiah. Now if you're a Jew, that's shocking. But I think the point here is not so much about Cyrus being called a Messiah. I think the point is that God says Cyrus is my Messiah, not Marduk's. Now the very same verse goes on to say, whose right hand I take hold of. Remember the Akitu festival, where the king of Babylon would grasp the hand of Marduk. See, Isaiah is saying, no, it's, it's the Lord who leads the king by the hand to direct him where he wishes. Still in verse 1, it continues to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armour, to open doors before him, so that gates will not be shut. Remember how Cyrus got into Babylon without fighting? The city gates were opened for him. And who did it? It was the Lord, the God of Israel. So you see, the Babylonians have believed that Marduk had raised up Cyrus. And there was one reason why Marduk did this. Because the ritual worship of Marduk in Babylon had ceased. And so Marduk is now trying to restore the worship of himself. But Isaiah says of all these events, no, this is the God of Israel. Because the the proper worship of the God in Israel has ceased. When the temple was destroyed 70 years before Cyrus. And so now it is the Lord, the God of Israel, who is restoring the proper worship of himself by sending the exiles home to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Now, you could just say this is a difference of opinion. You've got two equally valid speculations. Isaiah says it was the Lord. Cyrus and all the Persians say, no, it was Marduk. So who is right? How could you actually assess whether it was the Lord or whether it was Marduk? See, any ancient Babylonian or ancient Persian could have rightly objected by saying, look, it's all well and good for you to say that it was your God that brought Cyrus to the throne, but any God could say that. Cyrus himself says that it was Marduk. That's pretty persuasive. I'm going to go with Cyrus and believe that Marduk did it. And you could say to Isaiah, Isaiah, what evidence have you got to back up your claim that it was the Lord who did this. And do you know what Isaiah would say? Absolutely nothing. 
There is nothing that Isaiah would be able to say to defend his case. Because by the time Cyrus becomes king, Isaiah has been dead for 150 years. How's that for a persuasive argument? See, Marduk says that he called Cyrus by name and made him king. The God of Israel called Cyrus by name. Notice he's addressed by name three times in this passage. The Lord God of Israel addresses Cyrus by name and calls him long before Cyrus was even born, before Anshan was even heard of, even before the Israelites had even been taken into exile in the first place. And so, quite clearly, it was the Lord and not Marduk. Well, our second point is that God can use evil for good. We are told twice in chapter 44 and verses 4 and 5 that Cyrus did not acknowledge the Lord. He was a pagan worshipper of Marduk and a whole bunch of other gods as well. And he didn't have noble motives. He was just another bloodthirsty, power-hungry tyrant. Even his decree to let all these people go home, it wasn't out of love and goodwill. He was just trying to appease a multitude of gods instead of relying on one god to overpower all the others. And yet, despite all of this, God is willing to work through this evil, idol-worshipping king to rescue his people. Now, if you were a Jew in those days, there would be a very obvious reason to complain. God, how could you do this? How could you choose an evil idolater to be your instrument? Shouldn't you instead have chosen some righteous and holy, God-fearing Jewish man to be the liberator of your people? The Lord's response to that objection is in verses 9 to 11. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say, the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, what have you begotten? Or to a mother, what have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says, the Holy One of Israel and the Maker of Israel. Concerning things to come, Do you question me about my children? Or give me orders about the work of my hands? In other words, God can do whatever he wants. Who are we to tell God how he should do things? The Lord has made a plan to use an evil idolater as his instrument of salvation. That's exactly what he's going to do. And it's exactly what he did do in the end. See, God is both willing and able to use evil to achieve his good plans and purposes for the world. Well, our final point now is that Cyrus is nothing more than a shadow of another unexpected hero. See, like Cyrus... Jesus Christ was also a very unlikely hero. See, like Cyrus and just like Severus Snape as well, Jesus had the appearance of a bad guy. 
He turns up and opposes the religious leaders of his day. He caused trouble in the temple, throwing tables and driving people out with a whip. The authorities were afraid that he might start a revolution against Rome and cause mass bloodshed. And so Jesus was arrested. He was condemned to death by both Jewish and Roman leaders. He was executed on a cross, which was a form of punishment reserved only for the absolute worst of criminals. He looked like a bad guy. Yet it turned out that Jesus was in fact the sinless and perfectly obedient Son of God who was voluntarily dying on that cross as an act of love, love for God his Father and love for us his people. The bad guy turned out to be the good guy and be the saviour of the world. And just like God was using evil, to bring about good for his people with Cyrus. It's the same with the cross. The betrayal of Judas was evil. The actions of the Jewish leaders to condemn Jesus and to arrest him and to condemn him without charge, that was evil. The cowardice of Pilate, the brutality of the soldiers who whipped him and crucified him, it is evil. It does not get any more evil than this, to murder the Son of God. And yet in all of this, God was at work to save his people. God can and does use evil in his plans and purposes to save the world. Now also, just like Cyrus and just like Steve Rogers before he became Captain America... Jesus lived in weakness. Now, if you think Cyrus started out as a weakling, well, Jesus Christ was much more of a weakling. He was born into a poor family. He fled to Egypt as a child, as a refugee. And when he came back, he went to live in Galilee. If you thought Anshan was a nothing of a place, Galilee was more of a nothing. Jesus was just a poor peasant carpenter. He ended up abandoned by his friends. He was arrested. He was flogged until his bones were showing and was nailed to a cross. Now, what could be more weak, more pathetic than a lowly, mutilated, crucified peasant? And yet, from that low point, God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place. You see, Cyrus may have conquered all the nations of his day, but with the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus has conquered sin. He has conquered the devil. He has conquered death itself. Jesus was the true Messiah appointed by God. He is the true shepherd king who will rule over the world forever. Cyrus claims that he was the king of the universe. But he never ruled over China, or Russia, or Europe, or America, or Australia, or a whole host of other countries for that matter. And Cyrus only ruled for about 30 years, and then he died. But for Jesus Christ, he is the king who rules forever. There is no end to his rule. 
And there is no corner of the earth of which Jesus is not king. Cyrus restored the true and proper worship of God by allowing the rebuilding of the temple. But Jesus Christ restores the true and proper worship of God by turning our hearts, bringing us to repentance and faith, and by making us to be a temple where the Holy Spirit lives in us. See, Cyrus might have been one of the greatest figures of all of human history. He was the great Messiah, the ruler of the world, who rescued the people of God. But in all of that, he is only a very faint shadow pointing us to Jesus Christ, who is the true and greater Messiah.